you are my son, the beloved, the one in whom I am well pleased. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Please be seated. Today we celebrate the baptism of our Lord, and it's a most appropriate day to do baptisms ourselves. So I want to reflect, I want to reflect with you about one element of baptism, the naming that goes on. Now, Jesus had received his official name at his circumcision when he was eight days old. Jesus, which is short for the unpronounceable name of the Lord, Yahweh, saves. And it's amazing how much thought God the Father had put into what he would call his son. The parents who bring their children today have given as much thought as they can to naming their children. Adam Milan. Adam, where the human race begins. And Milan, an honoring of his father's side of the family. And then there's, there's honor, a name of strength, respect, and beauty wedded to a name from her mother's side of the family. And Emerson Jane. Emerson, a name that suggests braveness and power and strength, matched with the feminine form of the name John which means God is gracious, strength and grace, honoring of families, the beginning of the race, the need for, for strength, beauty, and respect. A lot of thought went into these names. A lot of thought went into our Savior's name. But what I want you to notice is at his baptism, then his actual name is assumed, and what we get from the Father is a commentary or an expansion. The Father calls him my son and beloved, one with whom I am well pleased. And there are two things I'd like us to, to see in this amplification or commentary on Jesus' name. First, the Father here calls the Son, calls Jesus my son. Why does he do that? He does that so that you and I can know that he has come that we might bear the family name. The writer to the Hebrews says that Jesus shares our flesh and blood so that through his death, which is symbolized in his baptism, Jesus might destroy the power of death that is the devil, he says. Which is why Jesus' first act following his baptism is to march into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil and to begin to show the devil, which means accuser, 
that his power over all of us is being broken. Now, the word devil, which we usually render, well, devil or accuser, literally means to throw through, diabolo. And it means to drive a wedge between. What an accuser does is seek to separate you from somebody else by offering an accusation against you. And the serpent's singular accomplishment back in the garden was to drive a wedge between Adam and Eve and then between God and us. And finally, between each of us and life itself. The devil is in the business of separating and dividing. And the whole of the rest of the book of the, of the Bible from Genesis through Revelation is about God bringing things back together that never should have been broken apart. Restoring alienation between men and women. Reversing the divide between God and us. And reversing the horrible divisions within ourselves. Ultimately, the, the division between spirit and body that happens at death. But including everything else up to death. From emotional trauma to physical illness. But the only way to reverse the wedge that the rebellion in the garden had driven was by undergoing the division itself. And so Jesus goes into the waters of baptism, accepting its death for the sake of its promise of resurrection. The book of Revelation offers a little significance as to what happens in, in one's baptism. Revelation 3.12 says, The one who overcomes, I will write on them the name of my God and my new name. What happens to Jesus when he comes up out of the water is he receives power from the Holy Spirit and the Father's naming of him as, you're my family and you're here to expand my family to place your name on my people. And so in the middle of the book of Acts, pagans begin to refer to followers of Christ as Christ ones, Christian. And in the fourth century, people were baptized and they came to be called, everyone was given the name Christopher, which means Christ bearer, so that you would be known as a Christ one who takes Christ into the world. And often people these days looking for a distinctive term for all of us will refer to themselves as Christ followers. My number one place of identity, my true family name is Christ one, Christ bearer, Christ follower. How different our world would be if people actually thought this way. How different the story of Romeo and Juliet would have turned out had people not thought of themselves primarily as Montagues and Capulets, but as Christ ones, brothers and sisters because of belonging to him. What if in Dante's world, his beloved Florence wasn't divided between Guelphs and Ghibellines, 
but was united by followers of Jesus Christ in the first place. And only secondarily were Guelphs and Ghibellines. Or how different the politics of rural Kentucky would have been if we didn't have people who were first Hatfields or McCoys, and secondly, maybe, followers of Jesus. How different the life in our fair republic would be if from the very beginning Hamiltonian centralists and Jeffersonian libertarians could understand that, no, in the first place, that they belong to the kingdom of God and the commonwealth of heaven. How different our own political landscape would be today if instead of, well, at first I'm blue state Democrat or first I'm red state Republican, but instead I belong to Jesus Christ and I care about everything that Jesus Christ cares about, and that is number one, his kingdom and how his family is doing. And in church politics, were we to be, first of all, lovers of Jesus, and secondly, had our traditionalist or progressivist progressive spins? How different my life might be if in my workplace, my first thought was, how can I be known as a Christ one, a Christ bearer, a Christ follower? How might I seed conversations differently? How, how might I think about how I am received when I speak out of motives that are less than what they might be? So first, the baptism in which Jesus is called Son invites us to think about the family name that we all bear and that we all bear together. And it's a time for me to invite you, if you have never really placed your life in his hands, to do so. If you've done that but never been baptized, consider being baptized. Let us take care of that for you. If you've been baptized but never confirmed, to step deeper into that faith and the family relationship that comes with it. The, the second thing I'd like us to notice is that the Father dubs the Son beloved. Beloved, with whom I am well pleased. This is exactly the same thing that, that the prophet Nathan does with Solomon. When Solomon is just a little baby, and he says, yeah, your name is Solomon, but it's also Jedediah, friend of God. This, this I would ask you to think of, think of this as our Heavenly Father's pet name for Jesus. When he shows up in prayer, the Father says to him, ah, beloved. I so am pleased with you. Let's talk. In, in the book of Revelation, we get this side of the naming as well. Revelation 2, 17 to the church at Pergamum. 
He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who overcomes, I will give them a white stone. Now, in Pergamum, there was red granite all over the place. And if you go to Pergamum, it's just a beautiful, beautiful remains. And it's all these red granite structures, red granite inscriptions. And every once in a while, a special inscription on a white stone. White stone had to be imported. It was special, and it was more expensive. And what God, what Jesus says to every believer is, I'm going to give you your own special stone, not like everybody else's, but a white stone. And on it, on it, a new name written on the stone that nobody knows except you. It's a name that we all bear. And then for each of us, that special white stone where he says, this is what I think about when I think of you. Put that in your pocket. And when you need to be reminded, pull it out. My beloved, one in whom I'm well pleased. Now, Tommy Lasorda, Tommy Lasorda for two decades was the manager of the Los Angeles Dodgers. Took them to four pennants, two World Series championships. And one of the things that made him a great coach was the way he worked with his players. There's no better example of that than the way he worked with this new, young, baby-faced pitcher named Oral Hershiser. When Oral Hershiser broke into the majors. He was a scrawny, still a scrawny little kid with a baby face. And he, he pitched, uh, sort of felt like he, he felt like he, he, he got intimidated too easily. But Lasorda knew there was a warrior inside Hershiser. So one day he took him aside and he said, Oral, your name is no longer Oral. Your name, I mean, how manly is that, right? Oral. Well, he said, here, I'm giving you a new name. Your name now is Bulldog. And I know there's a bulldog in you, and I want you to draw on that inner bulldog. Well, all Oral Hershiser went on to do was be the 1988 World Series MVP and Cy Young winner and have a long, very successful career pitching Major League Baseball. Now, I was a Little League coach. And I, I, loved, I loved the power of, of giving nicknames. And so every year I would give my players nicknames. And there was this one kid, I waited to try to figure out what his name really ought to be. And, it, and he just reminded me of Oral Hershiser. He was a scrawny, skinny little 11-year-older that I knew could pitch like crazy. Then I had a baby face and was a little kind of, you know, withdrawn and may, maybe a little intimidated. So one day, I took him aside. His name was Mitch. And I said, Mitch, from now on, I told him this story about Tommy Lasorda and Oral Hershiser. And he was all, all about baseball and loved that. And I said, now, Mitch, no longer are you just Mitch. You're Bulldog. And I want you to draw on that inner warrior and become the Bulldog. And he said, well, okay, coach. So he goes out and 
couple of weeks later, Mitch comes back to me and he says, Coach, um, I really like it if you didn't call me Bulldog anymore. You see, I want to go to the college that my mom and dad went to, all my aunts and uncles go to, and that my grandparents went to, and that's the University of Florida. I hate Bulldogs. So could I just be Mitch? And I said, oh, yes, Mitch. Well, here's the good news. On your white stone, God's not going to write bulldog if you're a gator. <laughs> he knows you, and he knows what you need to hear him call you. One of my favorite songs from the contemporary uh, praise song movement is by D.J. Butler. Her song goes like this. I will change your name. You shall no longer be called wounded, outcast, lonely, or afraid. I will change your name. Your new name shall be confidence, joyfulness, faithfulness, friend of God, one who seeks my face. I invite you today, during this next week, as you think about your baptism, to think about the ugly name that you give yourself, that life has given you, and think about what God would write on your white stone. Do you think of yourself as dirty? No, washed. Do you think of yourself as anxious? No, right, trusting. Do you think of yourself as loser? No, overcomer in my Lord and Savior. Addict? No, liberated. Driven? No, contented. As we come with these families to the baptismal font today, may we know the wonder of our gracious Heavenly Father calling us sons and daughters, part of His family. And may each of us sense that special name, that pet name, that he has for each of us, and truly believe it. Not loved, no, loved, loved. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit.